colonialism has not been all bad. It's got bad features, but it's been very good in a lot of instances. And there's, it's not just one thing, right? There's a big, big difference between the colony of New South Wales and how it developed and the Belgian Congo. The, the instinct of knocking down statues without really understanding who the people were, whose statues they were knocking down, is, um, is sort of emblematic of this. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Allpike. Today we are excited to bring you an interview with the one and only Nick Cater. We cover a range of topics including COVID in Australia and lockdowns, the necessity of risk, the teaching of history, the culture wars and more. Nick Cater is Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre and a columnist with The Australian. He is a former editor of The Weekend Australian and a former deputy editor of The Sunday Telegraph. He is the author of The Lucky Culture, published by HarperCollins, and is a host of one of our favourite podcasts, The Water Cooler Podcast. Welcome to the show, Nick. Great to be here, chaps. Really good. Now, uh, so Nick, you came to Australia in 1988 and decided to stay. Mm. Uh, this makes you a decided Australian. Yes, uh, <laughs> absolutely. And so why did you choose to make Australia your home and what makes Australia unique? The, the weather had a lot to do with it, but I think, look, obviously, obviously that's, that's uh, just one part of it. I, I just thought, well, I, I fell in love with the country at a very early age uh, from a distance. Um, and then um, early on in my career, I got to work for Channel 7 in London uh, under the legendary Paul Lynham, who was probably the toughest boss I ever worked for, but I love the can-do attitude that I experienced there working with an Australian crew, an Australian reporter. Uh, and then later on, I went back to the BBC and they foolishly probably uh, sent me out to cover the bicentenary here in early 1988. Uh, and I left um, Newcastle-upon-Tyne where I was then working in the middle of a cold winter and arrived in summer and um, spent some time in Newcastle actually and, and that was what convinced me going to Newcastle because at that stage Newcastle wasn't quite the vibrant city it is now it was um, it was undergoing um, a transformation you know the from, from a heavy steel uh, dominated shipbuilding town into you know a more um, uh, into something with less heavy industry and uh, you know unemployment was quite high and, uh, and yet people were living a wonderful life. And I thought, well, if this is how the unemployed live in Australia, I want to come here. So it was, you know, and yet if I'm going to put it down to anything, it's the freedom and, and it's egalitarianism, by which I mean everybody gets treated with equal respect. Nobody has tickets on themselves. And it doesn't matter where you come from. Uh, it's, it's how good you are that counts. And, you know, I was... You, being given a job and told when I first came, I got my first job at the advertiser and being told by the editor, we'll give you a start. And I thought, well, to give somebody a start is very different than giving them a job. They're prepared to give you a go at it. And it's, then it's up to you how you, how you, how you go. And I love that atmosphere in contrast to, you know, what was still very sort of traditional stayed Britain uh, dominated by quite a, but it seemed to me to be quite a rigid class system. I like the idea that you are like one of these Olympians who's left, who's come, who's come to the games in Australia or from a dictatorship, and you decided I'm <laughs> going to defect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very good analogy. <laughs> you looked at you looked at the, the 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 beach bunnies on Bondi, and you were like, "I'm out of here." 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I, I went back and I said to my 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 wife, well, my first wife, picked me up at the airport. And the first thing I said to her is, "I'm going to, I'm going to get the the migration papers and the pie to migrate, but I, it's okay. I'll get two sets, so you can come if you want." And uh, <laughs> um, and the, you know, good honour, she she agreed to come, and it was a big step to take. We had two young kids; I had no job to come to. Very strange feeling arriving in a country with no keys, right? Because I'd sold the car, I didn't have a house, I'd had no set of keys in my pocket at all and no job to come to. It was quite exciting, but also very frightening at the same moment. Um, but, you know, I've, I've you know, what, 32 years later, 33 years later, no regrets whatsoever. Australia has been a great country for me, even during COVID. Well, we wanted to get out the big, big gun straight away and talk about COVID. Um, COVID-19, it, it's had a huge impact on Australia, both from a health, uh, social and, and economic perspective. Um, how would you characterise Australia's response to COVID-19? Uncharacteristic. Like it's not, doesn't fit the normal Australian character. And you've seen this around the world, the reaction in the United States, in, in Britain, to the way we've handled COVID. People have gone, well, that's not the Australia we thought we knew, you mm. know, the, the free easygoing, uh, Jack's as good as his master sort of place. Um, of course, to some extent, that, that there's always been this other side lurking beneath. But uh, it's been a... I, I must premise this by saying I'm not critical. I'm not going to be critical of governments, even Dan Andrews' government, if I can help it. But uh, because they're in difficult situations, it's an unknown virus uh, nobody's quite sure what it's what it's doing, um, and when you know that it's, well, you, you've got a pretty good hunch that it escaped from a Chinese laboratory where they're possibly making biological weapons. You've got every reason to be worried about this thing. But mm. that apart, uh, we complete, you know, went completely overboard with this authoritarian approach. We kind of switched from to the authoritarian mode right away. We didn't kind of think well we could we could appeal to people's good nature to you know exercise social distancing or you know take the vaccine no we, we had to mandate it everything was sort of top-down jackboot approach mm. completely the wrong approach in public health in my view and there's plenty of literature around on this subject that says if as a public if, if you have a public health approach that doesn't trust people to do the right thing they won't trust you. So uh, the result of this approach is that we've exacerbated, you know, what they call vaccine hesitancy, mm. um, which come, you know, that's a blanket description of a whole range of feelings. But uh, at the bottom, it's saying, I don't trust the state to tell me what to do, particularly when it's not being transparent with the facts. And I, I'm very clear that, you know, there's, there's a, a degree of censorship going on and suppression and we don't know the full you know, things they're trying to treat us like idiots and that's when a lot of us get our backs up but i think it's a very bad moment for australia and i think we've got to work very hard to get over it put it behind us and go back to what we've always been which is one of the most free countries on earth mm, for sure well uh, i live in melbourne and, and john you were living in melbourne uh, during uh, most of the lockdown period here. Um, 
and you know, as you know, Melbourne suffered one of the longest and harshest lockdowns in the world. Um, six lockdowns over two years has really given me uh, a lot of time to think about the idea of forcing every man, woman, and child, healthy or not, to to stay indoors. Um, but it's the reaction of the public that uh, that I really kept coming back to. I'm, I'm fascinated that so many people have accepted restrictions such as curfews and radius limits and density limits, vax mandates, masks, working from home, uh, and so on. Uh, you know, without question. Um, why is there seemingly so little debate or even curiosity when it comes to to restrictions? You know, is this is this the Australia you moved to in 1988? <laughs> That's a leading question. Um... I, I, look, I think I think you know there is this massive feeling of fear out there in the community. It's taken me some while to appreciate that that is genuine fear, and it's a it's an emotion which is driving people to do quite um, extreme things. Uh, and so I think people, have, some people, for whatever reason, people like myself, I don't think I've spent a moment worrying about this virus personally. I worry about it in terms of what it can do to the elderly or people with pre-existing conditions. But for myself, I'm not worried. I haven't let, lost a moment's sleep over it. Uh, I've never cared really too much if I've got it because um, I, I suppose, partly I suppose my Christian faith treats me not to fear death, but but more than that, I just think, well, all everything I know about this, and we knew from very early on, is that you the particular demographic that this this virus cruelly attacks and i'm not in that you know i'm not overweight i don't smoke i'm relatively young i don't have any of the you know type 2 diabetes and so i was never fearful but a lot of people are and i think it's out of fear that they've reacted but there's another factor too and i just think it's that um we take our freedom for granted we've never had to fight for freedom here it's it's an, we're on one of only two continents on earth where there's never been a civil war um you know the other one being antarctica so we we're in a wonderful position where we just take this thing for granted we've always had it we don't appreciate how important it is and what you notice this sometimes every now and then you'll hear from somebody who's come from a different kind of society particularly people from the eastern bloc you know a good friend of mine um in New Zealand, who came from Germany, said, look, this reminds me of the old Germany, you know, the Stasi. Um, and those people feel a chill. There was a woman I, oh, tried to get me to buy an Audi off her, but I, I, I refused at an Audi dealership. But she, she was from Slovakia, and she said she had exactly this feeling. She'd come here because it's a free country, and she couldn't understand how we were going very close towards the kind of authoritarianism that she knew in her childhood in Slovakia. So I think it's, we just don't appreciate what we've got. Um, we don't know how close we've come to losing it. But Nick, don't you think that those exactly that type of person, the, the person who has engaged in a, some sort of experience with um, totalitarianism from the Eastern Bloc, Soviet or, or, or Stasi or whatnot, those types of people are, are sort of unseen by everyone like like those, those sorts of mm. criticisms have been voiced over the last couple of years and people just sort of shrug and go okay anyway about like i don't know donald trump or something you know yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. A, they move on it's a casualness about it isn't there but but also those voices are not are not being given room in the media um 
if we had a fixed line, you know, the, the mind was made up. Um, there was a fixed narrative that the only way out of this was to develop a vaccine very quickly and then for everybody to take it. And why wouldn't they want to take it? Because it's good for them. Um, and yet it's not, it, it's not worked out that way. But any, even so, anybody who speaks against that um, gets, gets marginalised or, or even you know, demonised or treated as some sort of fruitcake. Uh, and I've had to be very cautious, actually, in what I've said and written about this, um, because I thought, well, if, 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 if suddenly if I get put in that fruitcake basket, probably some people do already, but you don't want to get put in it by too many people because then nobody will read what you're writing about and it's a waste of time. So I've been very cautious and probably not said some of the things I would have liked to have said simply because I, I, I had a different opinion and, and we were in a situation where there was only one opinion that was considered the intelligent or legitimate opinion. And yet when I look back at what I wrote and, and thought at the time, I'm more and more convinced that I was, I was right. And, you know, that, that we've just, we, we made a huge mistake putting so much emphasis on vaccines, not looking at other ways around this great challenge that, that could have actually um, probably saved lives. Mm, yeah, well, one thing I've noticed um, is that uh, you, you well you can be uh, you can you can be someone who's pro vaccine but but anti mandate you know which is someone like me like I've I've taken the vaccine but um, the idea that the government will force to put something in your body seems very strange to me and I know they you know the government would say well, we're not forcing you to but essentially yeah, but they are they I mean, are they, they exactly they don't what what form of words they use there is coercion in place. For sure. And, yeah. and some premiers have been very explicit about that. We're going to make things very difficult for people who don't have the vaccine. Okay, it's not quite Austria. You're not going to get fined 14,000 euro. But, you know, actually to a lot of people, they paid a much heavier price than that anyway, losing their jobs. So it, 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 it's been horrible. Um, uh, and we still haven't, you know, as, as a by and large, people still haven't woken up to how bad this was. And, and actually how illogical and unnecessary it was, you know, as it turned out, because, you know, you, the, the biggest failing of the vaccines is they don't stop transmission. So in the end, you know, you, 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 you can catch this thing from a vaccinated person just the same as you can from an unvaccinated person. So the idea that you demonise people, you know, claim they were somehow unclean when you, you know, in that situation just is... is just it's um, almost primitive in its thinking, I think. Well, perhaps uh, I I just want to stick with lockdown just for one more question, if that's okay. Um, now I know you've said you you're playing it very uh, very straight and saying you don't you don't want to criticise governments, and I appreciate you not wanting to because look, it is a tough job, right? And like if I was uh, the person who had to make the decision, I'm sure I would have walked into a lot of mistakes, but. Let's just indulge this question for a second. So but recently, a, a new study's come out uh, by, uh, by researchers at Johns, Johns Hopkins, uh, which concludes that lockdowns are almost completely ineffective by, by their lights. The report included analysis of 24 studies separated into three categories. And so here's just a little quote. 
Um, and a quote, an analysis of each of these three groups support the conclusion that lockdowns have had little to no effect on COVID-19 mortality. More specifically, stringency index studies find that lockdowns in Europe and the United States only reduce COVID-19 mortality by 0.2% on average. They go on to say, we found no evidence that lockdowns, school closures, border closures, and limited gatherings have had any a noticeable effect on COVID-19 mortality. So I just think that the media at times over this process has stressed that we follow the science as they say, they've said that with zeal, um, that we are strongly encouraged to uh, heed the advice of experts. Um, and that's fair enough. You know what I mean? I rely on experts as I have with Johns Hopkins right here. So then why is the media not interested in studies like this? Like Melbourne is, and, and, and only because I only asked the question because Melbourne is the most locked down city in the entire world. If it was halfway down the list, I'd be like, oh, well, you know, they tried something and it didn't work. They're literally one of the most locked down cities. So I would have thought that this is something perhaps the public broadcaster could investigate, you know, Absolutely. four corners with the scary music and the rest of well, it. Well, hesitant as I am to criticise government, I do think that Dan Andrews' government is an absolute disgrace. Um, they made some terrible decisions which um, made people's lives miserable and horrible uh, unnecessarily and lockdowns being and, and everything that went with it was horrible and um, um, otherwise he's a fine chap but look I mean the thing the thing is um, <laughs> the, you know the, 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 the policing in Melbourne was particularly um, chilling really yeah. the way they carried out clamped down on demonstrations and that's all part of this lockdownism belief which you know a lot of us said from the start we wrote and we we talked to a lot of people who said this is just ridiculous this is not the way to control we've never used that before we've never used that before right never ever in the history of public health have we ever resorted to those kind of non-pharmaceutical measures in such a draconian way um, with no evidence it was going to work. And, and this, you know, this fig leaf of, of an excuse that we're following the science is, is just falls away when number one, they won't tell you the science, they won't give you the evidence. And in any case, the idea of the science is, um, is just uh, a contradiction in terms, you know, science is a process of debate and discovery um, attempts to establish the truth and and then attempts to refine that or disprove that. So there is no the science to follow, and there are many legitimate, you know, very smart people, ex experts in their field uh, here in the states in Europe who've argued for a different position. But it, they're in that position of not being, you know, the conventional wisdom always holds strong in any scientific debate. And if you argue with the conventional wisdom, then you're by nature not an expert because experts, of course, go by the conventional wisdom. This is the process, very familiar process of science. Um, so to be against the conventional wisdom is a very hard position to be in. And um, a lot of us have found ourselves in that position and not happy at all with the fact that there's no debate, right? No debate. As soon as you start to debate this, I say, oh, we don't want misinformation. We don't, we don't want to, and that, you know, even before you get to the shame of how they've shut down things on Facebook and, and the mainstream press being just as bad. Um, and then only in time to discover the, the idea they were trying to shut down was absolutely very credible.
So if, if more of these studies and inquiries reveal that, that coercive measures in places like Melbourne were undertaken, not based on sound advice, perhaps, uh, should we not pursue the people who have pushed the agenda so hard? Like, no, not for political points, not to win, like just on behalf of the people who were most affected, the young, the vulnerable, the essential workers. If you saw, I mean, all the businesses that were shut, some of that police overreach, you, well, that's my word. What Some of the videos I saw were very shocking. I mean, we all know that there's the, the pregnant uh, woman who was arrested in her home. I saw footage of people who who clearly had mental illness or were, were probably homeless or on drugs getting getting. Uh, wrestled to the ground by police on YouTube. And look, that's all anecdotal, I suppose. But uh, I, I just wonder, you know, what, what we should do moving forward. Yeah, well, I think, um, look, I'll go back to my original position, which I broke with, you tempted me to get stuck. <laughs> we tried to. Let, let, let's, let's, <laughs> let's say, and this is true, that, that it, it, it's difficult for governments. They, they didn't have full information. So I don't think, you know, we should we should really interrogate what went on, but not as a witch hunt. You know, we shouldn't be trying to apportion blame, um, but we're doing it simply so that we can learn from our mistakes. Uh, in fact, learn from what we did right, if we did anything right, and then, you know, not do it next time. That would be a, a way, say, um, Dyson vacuum cleaners would go about the task. You know, the, the problem with the, if they discovered a problem, they didn't do this vacuum cleaner quite right. So the next one that comes out will be better. So that's the way sensible innovation happens. Unfortunately, that rarely happens in public policy because people get too wedded to a particular position. And, and, and invariably, the, when a public policy doesn't work, be it approach to COVID or, you know, anything else, their attitude is then to double down. And you've seen this all the time. Oh, well, you know, it's not working. Vaccines are not stopping transmission. Oh, therefore, we've got to insist that 150% of people get vaccinated 33 times. You know, that's been the kind of approach instead of sort of standing back and saying, well, okay, perhaps we haven't quite got the vaccine that would have been the best one, the one that reduces transmission. So let's try and work another way around this problem. But no, they haven't. And and I don't think that's peculiar to COVID. I just think governments always, uh, or, or bureaucracies, they're like super tankers. It's very hard to turn them around. Uh, and and I, I think it'll be a long, long time before there is widespread realisation of the big mistakes that have been made in this um, COVID period, simply because people... Are wedded and invested in these these things ordinary people are you know they've done the right thing they've they've taken the vaccine they've it's very it's human nature it's very hard then to admit that the whole thing was you know a big mistake well uh that's a very measured response uh, nick and i've decided to put put aside my pitchfork and my burning torch for a moment <laughs> uh, just for the moment let's be kind let's be kind to dictator dan and everybody else yes. today <laughs> well let, then let's broaden it out then to off uh, off off people into maybe something more conceptual uh you know our concept of risk and arguably death, which you uh, brought the spectre of uh, death into it earlier uh, uh, when we uh, in, in our discussion. So our concept of risk and, and, and death has been totally warped, arguably, over the last two years. Is it possible to rescue the once rewarded idea of risk? Um, I mean, is this not essential to endeavour or and fulfilment in life? Well, it's an interesting question because we we've, we've been kind of shunning, moving away from 
risk for a long time. You know, they talk about cotton wool goods and, and so forth. You know, we're, we, we're removing risk from our children's lives. Um, we're, we're less relaxed about them, you know, going out on billy carts and breaking a leg than we they than my parents were in my generation. So th there is that averse, uh, uh, there is that um, risk averseness which is creeping in. And I think that's part of what's been going on. You know, oh, even one death is a tragedy. Well, it's not actually, you know, death is a fact of life. Uh, death is, um, death just happens. We're not immortal and governments can't make us immortal. Um, and you can't avoid every death. So that we had that view from the start um, that every life was sacred. And, and then, of course, you get this, um, um, this exagger exaggeration of statistics or misuse of statistics to over overstate the death from COVID. You know, we still are not clear how many people died with COVID and how many people died of it. Um, we've, we've got such little data on comorbidities. So I'd love to know how many of the people that died of, of being obese, for instance. I mean, mm. international studies suggest that a very large proportion of them. And um, it's just this lack of willingness to learn. And um, you would have thought, you know, they've been going on for years about obesity and childhood obesity and how we've got to all stop it and they were going to put some tax on coca-cola or something to try and make us thin which but now they had the perfect opportunity they could have said look there is abundant data that shows that one of the big factors in one of the big risk factors in covid is is uh, is obesity therefore why don't you you know redouble your efforts to lose a bit of weight uh why don't we but no what do they do they lock everybody away and and close the gyms um mm. so it, it's it's not they haven't handled risk in any way a sensible manner and say well what is the risk and how do we mitigate it because if they had they would have given very very different public health advice than they than they did mm. do you think it has something to do also with the fact that i think because we're, we're living longer and and childhood mortality is very low like like you could essentially be 35 and never had experienced like a death in the family of a of a loved one and and you think that has something to do with it that that you know the, the way you would talk about a, a 90 year old woman dying of covid as as being a tragedy where you could view that uh as she had a good innings I agree. you know i mean <laughs> if, she, good innings. if this was it. you know if this was charles dickens time you know i think he saw five of his kids die and his wife you know in in childbirth so well that's right and um and um yeah it is it is that we are living old, older so this is a problem i mean type 2 diabetes for instance is a is a big issue now in health terms but it's only an issue because we're living longer you know because it's a disease that mainly affects people over 50 and and very rarely kills anybody under 80 right uh, alzheimer's same thing so there is that there is that and and we are removed from death you're right i mean um i watched my father die of uh, pneumonia he he had um dementia he was 80 85 i think 86 um and it was a release and i i watched him die and i saw that the body shuts down and takes its normal process so I wasn't fearful of it in that sense because, you know, providing somebody's getting the right treatment and, you know, getting the morphine, plenty of morphine, it's a peaceful process. But I don't know that 
we have as much contact with death as we once did. So perhaps we are more fearful of it. Um, and also probably um, without wanting to turn this into into a into a sermon, because we, we're less we're less acquainted with spiritual matters and faith so you know uh so you know but that's part of the reason that the, the hole left by by that in in the western societies in particular is part of the reason that people people the way people behave about death in in covid is almost this 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 outrage this out this 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 like they're like that is so annoying i mean i'm outraged i can't believe i can't believe that someone and you just go well it's you know, we have not, I'm not bothered which spirituality, you know, you, you particularly adhere to. It might help you, uh, you know, deal with this process. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, some yeah, people... yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a great, I mean, faith does help give you these markers and frameworks about life that I think helps you cope with these things much better. All, but they're very selective, aren't they? You know, they, they get outraged about a great number of deaths or whatever, and then it turns out that most of them, of people in you know ripe old age of, of 85 or something but they're not getting agitated about kids um not getting socialization getting fearful missing out on school uh my granddaughter missing two two years of swimming lessons you know i mean the, the very age when you should be taught to swim like a fish so nobody gets outraged about that or or uh you know increase the number of self-harm cases amongst teenagers etc they're just focused on one thing i think it's just this narrative thinking you know that people have got settled into which is what we always do actually but in this case it's been particularly uh particularly stark because it came out of nowhere and it happened so suddenly and nobody would entertain another opinion or view Perhaps if we could pivot away from death for a second here. And- <laughs> we'll come back to it later. Nick. We might don't, come back to worry. it later, yeah. Don't worry. Back to Dan Andrews. <laughs> uh, on this show, we've, we've talked a little bit about, uh, about education in Australia and, and the lack of an in-depth and rounded teaching uh, of history. Um, it seems a lot of younger Australians don't know enough about some of the totalitarian, uh, totalitarian regimes in the past and, and uh, what individual freedom, liberty and, and democracy is all about. And... I feel as though this lack of historical perspective is going to harm future Australian generations. Um, do you think that the lack of historical understanding is is sort of partly the reason that we're in the mess we're in in terms of the culture wars? And 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 is it possible that younger people have gaps in their knowledge about the society they live in and thus take it for granted? Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. And yes. Um, it, it's um, it, it it is worrying to me. I mean, you mentioned that thing about lack of knowledge about you know, totalitarian regimes. Um, and, you know, somebody in my generation, we grew up in the Cold War. Uh, and, you know, I grew up in England, as you mentioned. And so we're not that far from communism. Uh, and I used to, I, I had a thing about uh, listening to um, the communist radio stations, you know, Radio Tirana from Albania, Radio Moscow. They'd have English services and I'd tune into them on shortwave at night and just listen to this communist um propaganda coming out so it was wow, always chilling yeah fascinating and chilling for us and uh, and uh i was always fascinated about going behind the iron curtain which i didn't really do much until it fell but it was real we could see that example of totalitarianism and i 
I do wonder now whether, um, what you know, thirty years after the fall of Berlin Wall, whether whether people growing up now have any appreciation of that. Maybe we could have sort of school tours to North Korea or something to show them. Um, but history more generally, yeah, and and lack of you know we've 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 allowed this very crude historical narrative to set in about say colonialism. Or, or racism, um, without any allowing for any curiosity or or investigation or thought or nuance in our moral arguments. I happen to think colonialism is not been all bad. It's got bad features, but it's been very good in a lot of instances. And there's, it's not just one thing, right? Like there's a big, big difference between the colony of New South Wales and how it developed. And the Belgian Congo, you know, number one, we, we you know, the, the 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 British troops did not go round cutting off people's arms as a punishment or warning, right? That happened in the Belgian Congo. So you you, you have to take a sensible view. And uh, President Macron um, of France said last year in a in a very interesting speech. You know, you can criticise our history, but first you have to learn it. And I feel that very much. I'm not going to listen to anybody who hasn't learnt their history, criticise it. I mean, you've got to get your head around it and, and, and not, not you know, this sort of, the, the instinct of knocking down statues without really understanding who the people were, whose statues they were knocking down, is, um, is sort of emblematic of this. Um, they, they want to kind of um, use... His history is a chance to work out their moral fervor without any thought about uh, whether, you know, there's almost a feeling that, oh, we're, we're so good, you know, to, up to now, you know, man start, mankind started off in, not mankind, we can't say that anymore, humankind started off in a brutal, <laughs> dark place. Uh, it's gradually got better, but it's not until now, not till we, the enlightened woke generation came along that we've been able to achieve anything like perfection that's that's the way they think about the world they don't, they don't have never any thought that maybe they're making huge mistakes that others in future might come to regret they're like forget the magna carta we made tinder <laughs> <All right. laughs> very good yeah you know i don't i don't yeah you know, i go for the magna carta every time <laughs> it's uh, be a better match for us, but it, yeah, it's also you know, I mean, understanding what a heritage or legacy is, and and how you know you you inherit a great from a, you come from a historical tradition, and that determines a lot about whether this is a good or bad society to live in. And we just happen to be dead fortunately, in my view, you know, to inherit the the British tradition of freedom and democracy, rule of law, and egalitarianism. Well, I've had uh, I've had this thought recently, and it's probably controversial to say in some circles, and that the benefits of colonialism outweigh bad aspects. You know, I mean that that's mm. that's that's something that probably get me cancelled if I say that. You know, <laughs> we shouldn't do it. somewhere at Sydney point, University no. or something, but it's just a discussion point. Or, but in an in the end, the inevitability of colonisation. So, you know, in a and I've just read a, a marvelous book. Uh, about uh, you know retelling the settlement of Australia, putting in some crucial details about how you know basically there was a strategic fight going on at that time for the Pacific between 
lots of powers, but principally France and Britain. And, and, uh, and that's why Australia suddenly became quite a valuable uh, place to, to settle, be, not because it was very hard. You know, there weren't a lot of riches to be had from here. You know, there wasn't a lot of trading to be had in terms of spices and things as there were with other countries. But it suddenly became strategically very important. So that being the case, if the Brits hadn't arrived here, the French probably would have had a stab at it, and it would have been a quite a different place, particularly since how the French inconveniently had a civil war the following year. Uh, and, uh, you know, so it was going to be settled. So the question is, were we fortunate in the, in the style and manner of settlement uh, or unfortunate? And I say it, it's overwhelmingly clear we were fortunate. We got uh, a country, uh, you know, we were settled in the era of the Enlightenment by an enlightened people who thought, we're not going to have slavery. We're going to have the rule of law. Like from day one, we'll have civic courts in Australia, not military courts. All these are important details uh, and um, say that, that good and bad things happen in history, but we were very fortunate to have that lucky break in the start. But this, this idea of inevitability holds no purchase with uh, the, the, the critics of, well, I don't even know what to say. Let's just say people who are... Who, uh, uh, critical of of the idea of uh, co Australian colonies and settlement at, at all. They, they, they would say, oh, um, you know, they just don't even acknowledge the, this, the idea of inevitability. They, they, go, they go, oh, well, you know, forget that. Anyway, what really happened was the English came. It was a left or right decision. They could have turned away, but they decided, they, they got to the shores and they said, like a Marvel bad guy, they were like, we're going to massacre everyone on this uh, country. That's why we're here. And now it's ours. Uh, and th that seems to be the, the logic. They don't get, there is no nuance in that. And, or, or what, what would have happened if they hadn't? So, okay, assuming nobody settled in Australia, we just left it in this sort of um, pre-modern bubble, which, you know, life expectancy was in, in the twenties. Um, it was a pretty brutal existence. You had no, modern medicine or any of these modern conveniences life was very hard um the aboriginal i mean i find it inspiring aboriginal settlers found it was so uh creative and and um and uh, innovative in surviving on this planet on this dark you know this difficult continent but 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 it wasn't a great life and and i i i think that life now is considerably better by almost every measure you'd have to say for almost everybody on this continent um you know notwithstanding the the the, the issues of aboriginal disadvantage remote rural australia that we have to deal with um and and you know the, the opportunities that are there for people in the modern world i like the modern world basically maybe i'm prejudiced in that maybe i, I just think that you know, I, I like modern dentistry being available. It's just, <laughs> it's just handy. You know, I could probably do without Tinder, as you say, but, um... but, but, but don't you think that also this, this, you're only empowered to have this, this view of this utopia of, of what Australia or whatever it would have been called, uh, uh, but, but existing in that pre-modern bubble, you're only in the, in, uh, empowered to do that when you live in the city and you've got an iPhone and you uh, live in Australia, like you've got our, our uh, socio-political 
conditions, causes and conditions. And then that sort of empowers you to go, yeah, uh, I got up late today. I think I might go to the March later and like, you know, kick it, kick up some dust on Twitter and see what happens. Like, I feel like this, there's a, there's a, 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 a tension there. Well, there, there's, a, I, I don't know whether this is what you're getting at, but um, there's a, an American academic called Rob Henderson who's written a, a great essay called Luxury Beliefs. So it, it is the fact that we are comfortably off that allows us to certain to think certain things, um, you know, like uh, our obsession with climate change, our obsession with Black Lives Matter and all those sort of boutique causes, which are actually quite removed from... They're quite abstract in many ways, and not. Uh, whereas, if you're if you're living in a, a society where you know less wealthy and, and earning a living and just surviving is is takes a higher priority, you can't have those beliefs. So, yeah, in many ways, that's what we're witnessing. I think. So th- there was a moment um, when some of us thought COVID was going to short circuit uh, the, the woke feedback loop that. Um that the West seems to be in right now. Uh, but sadly, I think the pandemic has only made that worse. Mm. Um, things that were pretty much accepted in society, like, you know, bio- biological realities between the sexes, the idea that character was more important than race, uh, have, have been hastily sort of junked and replaced by uh, a new orthodoxy. So according to the uh, ardent um, adherents of this view, uh, we live in a hateful, inherently racist, homophobic and transphobic dystopia, uh, but in in reality, like we live in a moment where saying something as banal as as a woman is an adult human female is considered hate speech. Um, how did we get here, and and uh, how did it happen so quickly? And and who do you think's behind behind all of this? Well, you can trace the um, the intellectual roots of this into you know critical race theory and other other theories with a capital T um, that. Yeah, relatively recent in origin until and until certainly until 10, 12 years ago, were very much at the fringes of academia. Uh, but they've gone mainstream. So that's the that's the the really hard question. I mean, you've always had sort of weird streams of academic thought. Um, the, the 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 challenge is when they go mainstream and why. And I don't mm. know if I've fully got an answer to that, but that's what's happened. And um it's, and so it is a theory. It's not. It's based on no empirical evidence. In fact, you know, people that, that argue for critical race theory actually are very. They don't like the idea of empirical evidence itself because that in itself is supposed to be biased or or culturally influenced or something. But uh, but so it's a. It, it, as such, it's a faith, um, and it's because it's not. It's based on a on a on a belief that this is so that you don't so you don't have to you know it's it is obviously so that white that white whites are racist and blacks are um, are not racist so you don't ha- they don't have to prove it it is most the most strange thing in the world uh, but there's a huge backlash against it uh, which is not the size of which is not always apparent because you know a lot of people are coward into silence by this uh, so you know when you actually do surveys on this 70 60 70% of people think it's it's troubling and nonsense but because they won't say so publicly well 
I have a concrete example for you. This, this, this just happened this week. So uh, I have a writer friend who's in the, who's in the arts and uh, the producers are looking for, for people for their project. And one of the producers sent around, uh, with no irony, I, an Excel spreadsheet of, of potential writers or, or up, uh, people they wanted to have on this project. And there was a column next to it that literally said, uh, next to the person's name, like, oh, this person's really good, uh, like queer, uh, you know, non-binary. It said their race. Like it was all of this stuff. I, now, this was the first time I saw it all in black and white. And this was one of those things where I looked at this. I had a really visceral reaction because, I mean, I've seemed unhinged for a while now about some of this stuff. But this was something, mm. seeing it in black and white, I was like, to me, and I'll get your read on it, Nick. I, I looked at this and I thought this was a shameful document that, um, if people come, if I hope people come to their senses soon, they're going to look at documents like that and say, I cannot believe that you wrote those, those things down next to someone's name. You know what I mean? Like, mm. and included them on, in some sort of official hiring uh, practice. Well, that's right. Like they, these are things are important. Like I've always thought, you know, brought up to believe that the color of somebody's skin, for instance, was the least important thing about them. Yeah. Um, now it's the most important and that that we you know we should accept people's you know whatever whatever their sexuality is that's their business what you do in your private time between consenting adults is their business but now it's not now it's supposed to be public um uh it's creepy though like could you, could it you is imagine, very creepy could you imagine in because look we're we're a little bit little bit younger so could you imagine in 1988 like you come in say to the advertiser and say, I want a job. And they say, yeah, cool, cool. Uh, are you queer by any chance, um, Nick? Yeah. Uh, I do, said, you, do you? I said as well, let's find <laughs> out. I still got the job. I like that. I, like I remember that. Alexander Downer said he, you know, he went to London. He, he, he's got some position at King's College in London. And he had to fill out one of these forms and he got to this bit. Uh, you know about I don't know what the question was are you gay binary you know whatever and he just put a big line across it and wrote none of your bloody business <laughs> this, this this happened to me recently when I got my uh, first COVID vaccine the place where I had it done I had to fill out sort of like a one of those standard documents you fill out when you first go to a doctor surgery or whatever and and one of the questions was that well like what what was your sexuality and what was your gender oh you are and- kidding what for a COVID thing? For, yeah, for, to get my COVID injection, and I What's and I wrote got that. To do with I, I, anything? Exactly, and I wrote I wrote uh, none of your business. No, so. you've missed the trick. You should have said, "Do I get a better vaccine?" Yeah, like That's what am I going to put? I'll put whatever <laughs> I got to put. Like, is it you know? Yeah. Well, I'm you know I, I'm slightly resentful because I'm I'm a member of a couple of persecuted minorities, but they they, they don't they're not like, they're not on the intersectional chart. You know, no, I'm, unfashionable. I'm, Minorities. I'm a, I'm a number of them. I'm I'm English for a start. I'm I'm uh, a cyclist. You know, in some circles, that's considered <laughs> to be totally. And, and I I'm a sociologist. I mean, particularly in right wing circles, that can get you shunned. But I I can never kind of take them to the Human Rights and Equal Opportunities Commission because it's mm-hmm. not one of those protected. The whole thing is mm. crazy and ridiculous. Well, you, uh, and, well, Nick, uh, you mentioned faith earlier. Do do you think this is just what's sort of that, that there's a, a religious size hole in in a lot of people's lives, and this has kind of filled it. Yeah, well, I think that's definitely true. I mean, I don't, I just struggle to see how anybody can get through life without 
um, a, a, a spiritual dimension to them and a faith. Uh, you know, how what do you do if uh, if some you know if a loved one dies or a friend dies? Where where do you how do you make sense or meaning of that? Particularly if it's somebody young or talented. Um, how do you do any of that without faith? And I kind of admire people who seem to cope with that thing without without um, you know a broader understanding through faith. But definitely, there's a um, and and betraying my sociological sociological roots here. But definitely, there there's a, a, a one of the big things that a faith does or a faith based community. One of the functions it plays is to give people an agreed set of rules and 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 morals and understanding of the way the world is that allows them to operate, um, you know, without sort of being continually fighting with one another. Uh, and 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 if you take that out, if if, if the Christian Judeo-Christian tradition is no longer the foundation of that understanding of how, you know how how we should behave, what's a moral way to behave, then um, something has to fill the void and and that's in a sense what wokeism seems to have done because it is you know it's a very deeply moral or moralistic uh way of looking at the world and it lectures you if you don't do the right things just as um you know sort of fundamental christians would have done and if you if you go against the code then you're out you you become um you know you become an outcast so it's it's so many sociologically it's similar to religion but the difference between that and Christianity is, of course, Christianity is true. <laughs> Controversial. Yeah, well, I, you don't have to comment on this, but I feel like the Guardian would have less problems if they had a few more Christians in there because, they, like, they eat their own now. Like, they're starting to, the revolution's, you know, mm. consuming its own. They're kicking out their own journalists and saying, you didn't say the right words and or not enough of them. And, like, so I feel like a bit of Christianity would, like, that's the thing. Like, people people like to lay into the, to the, obviously cherry pick the worst parts of, 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 of the faith or, or interpretations or whatever. Yeah. But I go, look, just forget that. Why don't you just stick to, stick to some basics? Like the Sermon on the Mount's got some good stuff. Why don't, you, why, don't you, why don't you stick to some of that? You know what I mean? Like being generous and charitable and the rest of it, you know? Yeah, I, mean, I do a bit of work with um, one from an institution called the Lockton Macquarie Institute where they, they basically um, Christian people who are looking to have play a role in civic life whether it's in journalism in politics in whatever area will go and uh, spend a bit of time you know getting some training and background in that and and whenever I go I'm inspired by these 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 people and I think well you know we complain for instance about the culture in parliament house and how, how it's supposed to be sexist and and whatever um Surely the solution to that is actually to, to have institutions like Lock McCoy, which can train people with a, a genuinely moral um, conscience and, and to go into public life and set an example. So I, I, I think that's, that's right. We'd like to turn our attention to tech censorship for a minute, if we could, because uh, we're pretty concerned about this topic. And you, like us, uh, express your opinions on a podcast, which until recently uh, seemed like a medium that was pretty uncancelable. 
Um, but right now we're seeing a spat between aging rock musicians, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell and others, uh, and Joe Rogan about his podcast, uh, The Joe Rogan Experience. And these former hippies are, are rapidly trying to cancel him uh, with a little help from Jeff Bezos uh, and some of the Democratic Party uh, surrogates as well. Uh, but each day we seem to be drifting towards more and more regulation online. Are you, are you concerned about free speech and tech censorship? Absolutely. Um, it's one of the big issues of our time. Um, that, you know, these people come to dominate the way we communicate with one another. It, it is something, it's a matter of consequence if they, you know, take on the role of censors. But I, I think with the Rogan thing, I think this is, this is a turning point, you know, because we've reached this point where you can see Spotify are, 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 caught, are caught in the middle here. They know that, that this Rogan and similar independent um, productions are so popular that they can't ignore them. They can't brush them aside. So it's a sort of a moment at which suddenly what we've seen, especially those who have been involved in podcasting, how what a powerful medium it is and, and what a low barrier to entry technically. So, you know, it's something that you, you don't have to wait to be given the green light. You give yourself the green light and off you go. This is fantastic. It's a transformation um, and you will expect to see in any transformation like this the incumbent uh, kicking up, whether it's aging rock stars or, you know, mainstream media. They don't like this. So it's going to be a rough ride. But in the end, I think and what we've seen with tech is um, people, there's always a workaround, right? If you get chucked off YouTube, you can work around it. Uh, and I think that's what will happen here. I mean, undoubtedly, Rogan probably has many more listeners now than he did at the start of this. So, Yes, it, yeah, well, that's what I thought. I think that the, the publicity's only helped him. If I was him, I'd be going, come on, chuck me off. I mean, I've got a $20 million contract with you guys. I should see you in court, and meanwhile, I'll go on another platform. Yes, well, he's just been offered a $100 million by uh, the, the YouTube rival, which is Rumble, so they've, wow. they've extended a contract or a potential one, an offer for $100 million for four years. So. What about you guys? Has, has, has anybody tried to chuck you off Spotify yet? Um, have you, uh, no, yeah, uh, but Neil we're, Young, Art Tup, we're, uh, we're, we're, working on it. we're working on it. We're, we're, trying, we're trying to get, we're going to get to the care first and then they'll get rid of us. Yeah. Um, I am aware it, it, we've run out of time, but I just wanted to ask you one last thing about yeah. um, your book, The Lucky Culture, mm. uh, if we could. So, the world of 2013 seems to be all but gone today from what I, what it feels like to me anyway. Uh, if you were writing your book today, would you change or add anything? You must have thought about it, it over the over the last, uh, you know, eight or yeah, seven Yeah, I've been kind of thinking about a second edition or writing a follow-up. Um, the, the answer is no in the sense that I think it, it, it holds. Uh, you know, it was a particular moment in time. It was, you can read... My book is a snapshot of, of the world at that time when it was becoming apparent, the emergence of the, the elite uh, as, a, as a force was becoming apparent and the moving of the, the, the political, you know, the, the landscape so that it was no longer the old left versus right, but a new dynamic was coming in. And um, I think I identified that and I remember going on Q&A and arguing with that tony jones who couldn't see what i was writing about he couldn't say well you are the elite he didn't get this idea what's he of what an urban exactly but <laughs> um but now he would like everybody now understands that that's where the divide is so he'd I think... change it now and he'd say in fact i told you 
about yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think I think red like that. I think it 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 it's. Um, I wouldn't change any of it, and and uh, I think it just needs updating uh, and to show that that the this has accelerated this trend towards div, a division between the educated elite and other people who deal with life in more practical terms has accelerated beyond belief um, with strange consequences that I would never have predicted. Excellent. Well, we are, we usually end with a bit of a selfish question and, and we'd like to know what you're reading right now. Um, oh, lots. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the middle of um, Andrew Roberts' biography of George III, George III, which is a fan, you know, everybody says George III was a, a fruit loop and, you know, lost America for Britain. But this is a sort of a, re a revisionist biography, if you like, which goes back and says, no, he's a substantial figure, a substantial liberal figure. Uh, so that's good. Um, I'm, I'm just about, I want to start Scott Atlas's book. Um, he was a mental advisor to Donald Trump, but, you know, gave advice that crossed uh, that of Anthony Fauci and so got taken off and demonised. So that'll be an interesting book. Um, and um, there's plenty else sitting there on the book table. <laughs> <laughs> Always. I yeah. always love to hear about what people are reading. Um, yeah. Well, thanks so much for giving us uh, so much of your time, Nick. And I look, we would love to have you back sometime because I, I got to tell you, there's so much about the ABC I wanted to get into. Uh -huh. Yeah. Didn't even get to it. Well, let's so. set part five podcasts aside for the ABC. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Really enjoyed it. That's great. Well, yeah, just before we go, where can we find your work online? Uh, Menji, well, you can get in the Australian most Mondays, I've got a column, uh, or you go to the Menji's website, menjisrc.org. And there's another podcast. You mentioned the water cooler. There's one that we're doing in our spare time called The Six O'Clock Squill. And it's with Tim Blair. I do record it with Tim Blair, uh, who's a very funny guy, as you know, and um, Simon Collins, Fred Paul, and then we have a bunch of good guests on. So that's a weekly podcast. Just go and look for the six o'clock squill. We think it's pretty good, and we think it deserves a huge audience. So, Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I can't believe that's one slipped by. I've yeah. searched your name, and it hasn't come up. So yeah, um... it's, it's 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 a funny world, isn't it? Podcast. It, it is. It, you know, it's not quite formed into you know where it's easy to to search but mm. uh yeah we we think this is a a, a pod we look we love it anyway it's just a it's just a a, a chance to attack wokeism with humor really i suppose that's what we that's do it. most the, weeks we love it already yeah <laughs> i think you guys will we'll have you on actually we should Anytime. do that yeah Anytime. excellent Great. absolutely okay good talking thanks Great. Nick. thanks nick bye see ya bye.